Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. We're in chapter two, um, and I want to start off chapter two with uh, kind of a, I want to put our headspace in a certain way. Last week, we, we kind of talked about Matthew. He's this tax collector. He was a Levite. Um, he is a part of the disciples, but probably hated or, or frustrated by most of them because of his profession. He chose to essentially betray the Jewish people in a lot of ways by working for Rome, collecting taxes, um, being kind of corrupt in his process. And so Jesus calls him into this group of people. And if you're following this series, The Chosen, which is like this, this series on TV right now that's kind of following through the Bible, it's, it's really apparent that um, like you watch it and you realize how much they don't like him. In fact, uh, I think the last episode, the last two episodes, they really pick at him a lot. And they're kind of like, why would you betray your people? And so reading Matthew, I think, is unique because he is a Jew, and he knows a ton about the Torah, the Bible, the law that, that all the Jewish people knew. Uh, but he was also kind of in the middle of, of being hated still and trying to figure out what are the things he wants to include in the gospel according to Matthew that we're going to talk about. So last week, 10-second review. Last week, went through this really great genealogy. Stephen crushed it and read all these really hard-to-pronounce names. Um, but hopefully, if you ever have a baby, you'll be able to pull one of those names for your kid now. So... Jehoshaphat is up on my list for our next child. So, um, but we read that, and then most of you are like, ah, it doesn't really, why? why? You know, you just kind of usually skip over it. Um, and we talked about how Matthew wants, he, he's, he's talking to Jewish people who are kind of having this tension with what they had known and what, who Jesus was and what that meant in their life because they're still culturally Jewish, but trying to figure out what does following Jesus look like. And so he's, he's kind of throwing unique angles in here that we don't see in the other Gospels because of that. And so he's trying to prove at the beginning, hey, Jesus is the, through the correct lineage that was prophesied, that we know he was the son of David, which is God makes his promise to David, and he says he will be a part of your, like your lineage, your son, and we know that son in this Bible several times is more of like a seed. It's not just your direct son. And so Matthew shows the lineage of that, uh, and then he goes in to tell a little bit more about the name of Jesus. He, he uses the name uh, Jesus, which we say Jesus, which really just means Yahweh saves. And what that means is Yahweh was the name of, and still is, the Jewish people's Old Testament God, who we believe is God the Father, Yahweh. And, God, and, and they're all wondering, is Yahweh going to save us? And so Yahweh gives us Jesus, who is Yahweh saves. So Yahweh saves is his name, and he's going to save us. And it shows us that he is God with us. Like the song we sang, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is not sitting up in the clouds. He was not sitting up in the clouds. He came down, became a human, lived a human life, uh, and he endured the things of being human because he wants to not only, he not only wanted to sacrifice for us, but he wanted to embody love with us and through us. And so that's the beauty of what Matthew's getting at. And so this week, uh, you're still kind of like, it's kind of still the birth story. It sort of is. Um, we're going to go through part of it. And there's three specific things that Matthew's trying to do in, in, in chapter two. He'd already kind of done two of them early, like I said. Lineage, direct through. He's, he's, uh, he's doing what we call apologetics. Apologetics essentially mean the defense of your faith. So 
if you have this, you know, person who disagrees with you about God or about Jesus or whatever, an apologetic would be you studying and understanding the scripture and philosophy and all these type of things in such a way to defend what you believe and why. Um, especially with, like Mary was talking about with science, like there's tons of Christian scholars. In fact, there's, I think there's more than 60% of like high-level scientists are Christians. And their, their apologetics are very, very out, uh, outstanding. But they are able to defend the validity of Christ, right? That's what Matthew's doing with these Jews. He's telling you, hey, you know all this stuff, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to validate the validity of who Jesus is through these several ways. So we already kind of looked at two, the genealogy, and then God with us, his name and, and birth story. And now we're going to do three more today. And to set the stage for this, uh, I, I just I think about this, this chapter, and, I, and when we're, we're, we're reading it and talking about it, what I want us to think about is the hard seasons in life where we really just question if God's real, if he's here, if he is here, why isn't he doing certain things? Um, if, if there's doubts we have that we feel alone. And uh, surprisingly enough, this will be Matthew 2. Uh, I don't know if you'll realize that, but as we get through it, you will realize it, I think, pretty quickly. Uh, it's Matthew 2. And, and to be honest, what's, I think, really, really hard for us is we, we know as Christians we, we are called to hardship and to suffering, but we still have a hard time believing in a really true great God, but then also being like, but why is he letting me suffer in all these things? Like, maybe you've had a season in your life where uh, you've had financial strains or relational strains or um, you've had job uncertainty or health issues or uh, family problems or whatever it may be. Like, we have these things, or maybe it's just apathetic. You're spiritually dry. You're spiritually, maybe you're spiritually abused. You just, you're in this spot, and and you start to question all these things about God because of your circumstances on earth. And it's normal. It's human. In fact, uh, you know, my last week, Sarah and I have been fighting. And uh, it's really hard. And it wears on not only us, but our marriage and the people around us. And, and everything is so intimately combined. When I am struggling relationally, I am struggling with God. Um, when I am struggling financially, I am struggling with God. We are humans and we're all, it's all woven in there. And, and we, we sometimes like, want to put God up here and just kind of forget about everything else. And God says, no, 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 like, I'm God with us. Like, I'm in all of that. And so what we're going to see here is, is as we take this lens of understanding and reminding ourselves of the hardships in life, whether they're right now, whether they were, whether they will be, most definitely, Matthew 2 is, is in some ways uh, is comforting in that. So first verse, let's get into it if you're ready. Verse 1, Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So let's just stop here. A little bit of history, just so you know. Uh, Jesus was born arguably in 4 BC, not 0 AD, if you're wondering. It's kind of confusing because it's before Christ and after Christ. But, um, but he was, most people would argue he was born in 4 BC. Um, you can look it up if you want. It's totally fine. But anyways, he was born around 4 BC, which meant that you have a, a Mary, who's a Jewish teenager. You have Joseph, who's also a Jewish teenager. They're engaged to be married, and uh, the story is kind of crazy. We know the Holy Spirit impregnates Mary, and she's going to give birth, and, and, and uh, Joseph's like, what's going on? This is, I know how this works. Like, you cheated on me. <laughs> the angel comes, and he's like, no, she didn't. And so they're waiting to give birth here. And this is the craziest thing. God is orchestrating all of this. 
The Romans wanted to raise taxes, and so when they raise taxes, they have to, they have, to have you go back and fill out a census. You can't do it online like we do now. Uh, and you've got to go back to your hometown. And so they're on their way back to their hometown in the middle of this, and of course the town is full because everyone's going back home to register. And so they're going back for the census, 80-mile trip on horseback or donkey while you're pregnant. I don't know about you. Sarah and I took, I don't know, six-hour road trip pregnant maybe, and that was probably enough, right? 80 miles, which would take several days on a donkey or horseback. Uh, it, I, I, just w- I would think it would not be fun. <laughs> would not be a good baby moon, if you will. Um, and so they get stuck in this random town, right? They don't have their family. They don't have a midwife. They don't have anything. She's like ready to give birth. And they're in this town of Bethlehem. And, and not only that, but they're there in the middle of the census. There's nowhere to stay, right? There's literally nowhere to go. So they're in a, either a cave, a manger. All scholars argue this. We don't really know, but just something, like not a house. They're outside in the, the barn, stable, manger, cave, whatever. Or, uh, and not a sanitary place to have a child. It'd be like having a child at um, like a uh, oil, like oil. <laughs> like this is the modern day equivalent. You go to like Jiffy Lube and you're like, hey, I have to have a child here, you know? And you're like, this place is not sanitary. There is oil everywhere. And there's lots of things that are sharp and pointy. And, you know, it's like that, that's the weight of it. Like you would not be happy with that. We're kind of like, oh, it's so cute. Like there's a horse beside the baby. Like it's not really how that goes. And, and, and then we have in the time of King Herod in verse 2, and uh, this big caravan, this magi come from the east, which is most likely Babylon. And they're coming uh, to basically see, this, to see Jesus. They had, they had used astrology in this sense which is kind of crazy that God um, communicates in such a way. They're heading that way, and they go to Jerusalem, the capital, and they, it says they, they literally, when they get there, um, they go to Jerusalem, and they're talking to King Herod, and they say, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Now, if you didn't know this, King Herod is technically the king of the Jews at this time. So that would not go over very well. If, it'd be like if you walked into like, someone's house and you like, talked to the dad, and you're like, who's the man of the house? Where's he at? Can I talk to him? And you're like, this is me. So King Herod, not a good start for the wise men. Uh, and so King Herod then is, he is incredibly insecure. Uh, if you don't know King Herod, let me give you a little, a little debrief here. He had crushed, with the help of the Romans, any opposition to his rule, and he was a heavy taxer. So he was loved by the Romans, for the most part, hated by the Jewish people. Actually, the Jewish people didn't really like him. And, uh, but in the last few years of his life, we know he died around, in this time period. And so he uh, was going crazy, like seriously ill, kind of mentally crazy. And so he turned his, uh, his, into cruelty, fits of rage and jealousy, and he was incredibly insecure. He actually killed close associates, his wife, uh, Mariam Ney, uh, who is of Jewish descent, and at least two of his sons. Uh, and so all of Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem is alarmed by the wise men coming because it's not like, oh, cool, the king of the Jews. They're like, oh, no, what's, what's Herod going to do to us? You know, it'd be like if a new guy came in and was like, I'm the boss. You're, like, terrified because you're still kind of under the other boss. And you're like, uh, are we going to get fired? Are you just going to start, like, kicking people out? So everyone in Jerusalem is on, on edge because this giant caravan, it's not just, most likely not just three wise men, a giant caravan arrives and says, hey, where's the real king here? <laughs> and, uh, and so then what does Herod do? He talks to the, the religious chief priests, experts in the law, uh, and he asks them, you know, where is the Christ to be born in verse 4? In verse 5, it says, in Bethlehem of Judea. They said, for it is written this way by the prophet. And so Matthew, once again, Bible scholar, Bible nerd, he's quoting a prophecy. 
It says in verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is alluding to, uh, if you, you probably have a, you might have a footnote uh, in your Bible, Micah 5, 2, 2 Samuel 5, 2. Um, Matthew's pulling constantly from the, from the Old Testament, from the Torah, because remember the Jewish people be like, oh, I know that verse. And so he's just showing us, reminding us of the validity that I talked about last week. Uh, and so let's move on. Verse 7, it sets up the setting, these, these religious people. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them uh, determined from them when the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and look carefully for the child. When you find him, inform me so that I can go and worship him as well. And after listening to the king, they left. And once again, the star they saw when it rose led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. As they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his, mo- his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. This is the, uh, this is the classic, like, um, you know, you have the nativity scene, you got all, a little bit of everything, right? The shepherds, the, the wise men. Well, the wise men didn't really come at, like, the birth of Jesus. It's not like she had him in the ne- that night. They're like, we're here, surprise. Um, it'd be more like, you know, several days later. But they show up, and it's these wise men. Like I said, there's probably more than three, but three of them drop gifts, super valuable gifts at their feet. It's almost like, you had a baby, and some random people showed up and said, your baby's cool, here's 10 grand. And you're like, wow, thank you. <laughs> uh, but they, they show up, and this is so cool, just seeing how God provides and uses all these people. But they show up, they worship the child, like they worship the child, and, and they leave. Now, Herod at this point is, is really trying to, he's being manipulative. He's like, go down there, tell me how it is. I'd love to know. He wants to know because he wants to know if Jesus is there and he's going to kill him because that's Herod's unstable and insecure and crazy. And so in a dream, in verse 12, they, return, they don't return to Herod. So Herod's trying to bait them in. They drop all this great stuff at Jesus and Mary's feet. And, and I mean, think about this even. Like Mary having Jesus in another town without family, without midwife, in a really terrible situation, being there for several days, and then these random people show up, and they're like, here's some money. And you're like, this is really weird. Like very, very bizarre. Not only bizarre, but hard. I mean, can you imagine like having... I know people who are pregnant, women who are pregnant, like, they don't travel when you're eight, nine months pregnant because you're like, what if I have a child and I got to go way over here and I'll have my doctor? I don't, you know, I remember Sarah and I were like, we have like four hospitals to pick from. And then we're stressing about that. And Mary's like, I'm in a small town with like a gas station. So (laughs) it's just, it's crazy how the son of God, that's his story. That's his story. So the wise men leave. And uh, in verse 13, 14, this is where it kind of gets crazy. Now, most of us, I don't know, typically stop the story. We're like, oh, that's great. Wise men came, gave him some gifts, leave. And then we just like think about man Jesus, 30 years old. And, and then we just kind of skip what's going on here. But this is incredibly traumatic. Verse 13, after they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to look for the child to kill him. Then he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and went to Egypt. I don't, know if, I don't know if you can imagine this, but you're in this town that you don't really know very well. It's not very comfortable. And then an angel appears to you in a dream. And then you're realizing your child is about to be killed by the Roman people marching only five miles away. It's not very far. 
because Herod wants to kill your baby, and you're telling your, your, your just post-labor you know, um, wife of the little newborn that, hey, we got to leave right now in the middle of the night with a crying baby, and we have to make a 300-mile trek to most likely Alexandria, but somewhere in Egypt. 300 miles, not in a car, no Teslas, no buses, horseback or donkey. 300 miles with a newborn. I mean, that is like, I just can't even imagine. I was like, that is brutal. 300 miles, thinking that potentially they could find you, catch you, kill your baby. And probably you, to be honest. And so you get this dream and they leave. Now, we don't remember the weight of this story. Like, Jesus is born and it's not like all just roses and peaches. Like, it is literally almost immediately traumatic for Mary. Not only had you had this baby in this hard town, but now you're running away. So they're, they're running from these, uh, the Romans, basically, who are coming to kill Jesus. And then we get into verse 15. He stayed there until Herod died. In this way, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet was fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt. Now, this is one of three claims we'll talk about. You don't have to put it up yet, but um, this is him quoting Hosea 11. Our core group's actually reading it this week, which is ironic. Um, Hosea is a prophet, and the whole story of Hosea is beautiful, but it's basically God symbolizing the Israelites, his chosen nation, and how adulterous they were, how they just kept, he literally uses the phrase like whoring themselves to other things. It's kind of intense, but that's what it says. Because we are choosing things over him. We're, we're choosing sin and our own selfish desires and whatever we want over the purity of what God offers. And he, he tells Hosea the prophet to marry this prostitute and representation of this and just keeps pursuing her and pursuing her when she cheats and she cheats and she cheats again and again and again. Just keep pursuing her. And it's this symbolic beauty of him pursuing us as we continually commit adultery. And so in Hosea 11, remember, Jews are hearing this from Matthew. Uh, he's quoting verse 1. It says, When Israel was a young man, Israel, nation, young man, I loved him like a son, and I summoned my son out of Egypt. This is 800 years ago. 800 years before Jesus, Hosea says this. And, and we think about this. All the Jews knew this scripture. And what, they, what, what would you assume when you read this? You assume Israel is the son. Okay, so Israel is the nation. God, with Moses, calls them out of Egypt, right? Parts the Red Seas. They, they take this really long trek through the bunch of stuff, and then they're finally in the promised land. And so everyone in the Jewish culture is like, yeah, that's what that means. And now they're like, wait a second, though. Matthew is pulling on this, and it says, I called my son out of Egypt. And so what, what Matthew is doing brilliantly is he's pulling on what they know in their past, and he's showing them that it has a weight to the future, that it's not just the past, but but that God is re-echoing. And, you'll, and this is the beauty about the Old Testament, that people don't want to get through it, but you will read pattern after pattern after pattern after pattern. It's like there's a, there's a, a, a king who's oppressing the people, and then God comes in, and he saves them in such a way, and then they, they basically disillusion and sin and idolatry, and then they fall away, and then another king's raised up, and they, they take them, and then God saves them again. It's this pattern just throughout all the Old Testament. And, and he's doing it again here, but the difference between this pattern is Jesus finishes the pattern. There is no more after Jesus. And that's what Matthew's showing here is, look, you guys remember that story? How did that one go in the long run? Not so good. And so he's pulling out of Hosea 11, and the Jews would have probably been a little bit puzzled because they knew the past, but they're not thinking about it being a messianic about Jesus, scripture. So let's keep going. So but the first one, this first claim, just to simplify it for you if you're taking notes, is Jesus is a repeat of the Old Testament stories with a final resolution. So 
All of the Old Testament, that's why we talk about Jesus in the whole Bible, believe it or not. All of the Old Testament is, is a showing the incompleteness of man trying to do what only God can do. And Jesus showing up as man and is completing it finally. It's the final attempt that is, that is finished. And uh, Matthew's showing him that. Hey, remember how this didn't work and this didn't work? So let's keep moving. Verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged. He sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. So Herod is crazy. Now, the, uh, this doesn't make it any better, but the town was not very big. Um, and so scholars estimate that anywhere from 12 to 50 young boys were killed. Doesn't make it any better, but... Um, you know, you read this, and you imme- I immediately think, like, what, why would God include this in his plan? Like, and what, what, like, what, what would be the point of that? Like, people just innocently dying, these poor babies who had nothing to do with Jesus, just happened to be in the same city, and, and you see Rome come down on these people. And remember, this is where doubt hits, right? We become really frustrated. We're in the hard season. We say, does God really exist? Is he really exist in the way that I think he does? And, or if so, what does this mean about who God is? Is he just this crazy guy who's just cool with everybody dying and being murdered? And this is what Matthew does. This is, this is our apologetic, if you will. Verse 17, then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. In verse 18, this is in Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud wailing. Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be confronted because they were gone. Now, this is a, kind of a, a deep pull, in my opinion, for Matthew, pulling from the Old Testament. The Jewish people would probably know that they would know the story and the location. You're not like, yeah, I've been to Ramah, cool place, I know where it is. <laughs> but Ramah was uh, essentially this place where Rachel, Old Testament character, uh, she dies in childbirth, her second child, uh, Benjamin, and, uh, and she's buried in the area of Ramah, which is uh, not too far out. This is all very close. I wish I had a map, but I'm not, I, ha- I don't have one right now. But in Ramah, and Jeremiah is, is, like, this is once again, Jeremiah is using this passage in his moment, and then Matthew is drawing it into the story of Jesus. So Jeremiah's moment is he is literally alive and watching the exile of, of the Israelite people. Babylon came into Jerusalem, just wrecked house, killed tons of people's babies, men, whatever. They take the people they want left to Babylon for exile for several hundred years. The Israelite people are gone from the, the holy city where God was, gone. And Jeremiah's watching this and he's writing, basically, Rachel is seeing her, her, her sons killed. Remember, sons is mean, doesn't mean just son, but lineage. Her lineage killed, taken away, exiled. And, and so Jeremiah is using it for that instance. Matthew is now pulling it again as a fulfillment for Jesus. And he's saying these, these Bethlehem mothers are, are sitting here watching and weeping for the children who had been killed. And it's, it's as if God is saying the world is full of death and hardship and tragedy and, and, and it's no more. I'm done with this. And basically from here, all of exile to now the weeping of these children, now Jesus has come and he's going to fulfill. There will be no more weeping and crying. That all things will be made new through Christ and that that his legacy will, will remove all, hard, all, all suffering, crying, weeping, because we know that we have a greater hope. And so it's this kind of crazy, it's this crazy fulfillment. Herod, crazy leader. Uh, Pharaoh, crazy leader. 
persecuting the people. God shows up and says, hey, Pharaoh, no more. And Pharaoh's like, I'm going to do what I want. And then it doesn't go well. Herod, I'm going to do what I want. doesn't go well. God is, is working through, really, he's working through a broken, sinful world. And he's saying, hey, there's weeping now, but it is over and it is finished. And, and so Matthew is, is, is showing here the weight of Jeremiah in this. And he's saying, there is hardship and there is destruction and there is pain and there is death and it's terrible, but the one who comes will restore all things new. And, and, and that's the confidence that we have is that, not only that, but Mary is dealing with all of this as well. I mean, she's not distant from it. She's probably, you know how guilty you would feel? You go into another town, it's not yours, and because of your birth of your child, you leave and a bunch of babies are killed because of you. I mean, she is central to all of this, this, this destruction and we remember in the, the genealogy of Jesus, that genealogy is a bunch of broken, crazy, sinful people. I mean, we, 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 we go into the Bible and we just think every, everybody should have it all together. And we are very disappointed pretty quickly of the world that they're in and the world that we're in today. And God is, is, is working through the midst of the suffering and pain and, and he's saying it, it's finished. And so that's what Matthew is showing us here. Jeremiah 31, which is six, 600 years before this. Um, this is the beautiful thing of, Ma- of Jeremiah 31. All this happens, Rachel's mourning, and he says this. He says the next verse, so Jeremiah 31, 15 is what Matthew quoted. The next verse, which would most likely a lot of the Jews would know, is stop crying, do not shed any more tears, for your heartfelt repentance will be rewarded. Your children will return from the land of the enemy. I, the Lord, affirm it. So Jeremiah is seeing what he's seeing. The Jews know of what he's seeing. And Matthew's saying, hey, the Lord's affirming it now. It is, the time has come. The fulfillment is here. And and he's drawing on that. So the second, the second claim, second thing to write down is Jesus is in charge and he will fully restore and redeem the sin and the hardship of the world that we are in. And it's this, it's this really terribly sad um, moment but we see that God is not just ignoring it. He's not just not present. He sees it. His heart grieves through Jeremiah. He's talking through Jeremiah. His heart grieves for the people. And he's saying, don't worry, you don't need to cry anymore because I affirm that I will do something. And Yahweh is going to save through Yahweh saves. So Matthew is not neglecting the hardship. In fact, it's kind of a, kind of a sad way to start the story of Jesus. Um, but... Uh, just when you think, you're like, well, this was a bad start, Trey, for Jesus and Mary. It's going to get a little worse. So verse 19, uh, after Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, like he had said, in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and returned to the land of Israel, 300 miles back. But when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's uh, son, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. After being warned in a dream, he went to the regions of Galilee. If you thought Herod was bad, Josephus, who was a first century Jew, um, he is well known and credited like atheists use his history. So he's not, he's actually, did not believe in Jesus, but wrote about Jesus. Um, He's a first century Jew. He wrote, he recorded that when Archelaus began his reign, he massacred 3,000 Passover celebrants. This is in the Antiochs of the Jewish first century. You can read the history book. But this guy was brutal, like worse than Herod. And you're kind of like, wow, the apple does not fall far from the tree. 
And, and so he had good reason to not go back there because he's worse than Herod. And they're thinking maybe he'll like come for us. So they, they, they go 300 miles back from Egypt, horseback again, a lot of traveling, a lot of horseback. Uh, and then they get to the city. They think they're maybe going to settle down where they had Jesus. And then they realize, oh, wow, this is also unsafe. So then they go the whole way up to Galilee, which is, I think, 70, yeah, 75 to 80 miles, again on horseback with a young child. And they settle, verse 23, in a town called Nazareth and lived there. And then what had been spoken by the prophets was fulfilled that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, uh, Nazareth is about as podunk as it gets. I was trying to think of like a city around here that we could make fun of, and I kind of felt bad thinking of ones, but I don't know. Just think of like a small town, one stoplight city in Ohio where you just know everyone, you know? Like, and you, you work there your whole life, and you know everyone, and when something bad happens, everyone knows, right? And so they go back to the town where everyone had, this is probably 500 people, maybe a little more, and Mary had been the, the girl out of wedlock that had a baby, right? So you're going back to the shame of that town after traveling all this time, thinking they're going to kill your baby, still probably having fears about that. You're traveling, 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 traveling. Then you go back to the town where everyone's like, looking at you, like, we know who you are. We know what you did. I mean, you imagine... The stigma today is still bad for like young mothers, right, who are teenage moms. Imagine at this time the shame in just dealing with that in a small town. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine it, but they go back to this small town in Nazareth, and uh, this is where Matthew, I think, really gets on a next level of nerdiness. This is the third one, third claim. Uh, he, he, is, he says here, and you probably wouldn't notice this if you didn't look at it, but that what had been spoken by the prophets was fulfilled, that Jesus would be called Nazareth. Now, here's the thing. Nazareth wasn't even really around in the Old Testament. It was nothing. It was basically just desert. So if you look up, hey, what prophets said this? None of them did. So you're kind of wondering, that's weird. Well, why is he saying the prophets? And why is he saying, like, plural? Like, they should have said exactly what, what, what Matthew's saying here. And so there's several different arguments. People have been arguing over this for hundreds of years, but... Uh, the, the, best, the best approach is um, this idea that in Isaiah 11.1, 1, which is probably the closest we would, we would pull of it, he says that um, basically Jesus will be a branch, um, that he will be, and this is kind of a funny illustration, but there was the stump of, of Jesse, which was like the lineage of Jesus. It was cut off, it was exiled, but then Jesus is a branch that's growing from that, and so he's pulling on this idea of Nazareth's name has the root meaning, which literally means branch. And so Nazareth was branch, Nazareth city. And so some people say that Matthew is being really like clever here, really, really clever. And he's basically saying like this city, the, the prophecy of him being a branch is the branch town that he, that he was born in, Nazareth. Um, I don't necessarily fully agree with that, but I'm mentioning it because it's a very popular view. So I thought maybe you'd want to hear it. Um, but I think what's most important about this, uh, because I think you should be able to get a good um, perspective on this, is, is that the priority here is, is I think we're actually going to find it in John 1, uh, 43. Where I'm gonna, I think I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, I'm going to read this, and this, I think this will give it away. But John 1, 43, this is, uh, on the next day Jesus went to set out for Galilee. He found Philip, who's a disciple. He said, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth. Once again, Jesus of Nazareth. Why is he saying that? The son of Joseph. 
Nathanael replied, here it is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip replied, come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What has been said about Jesus in the Old Testament, not specifically of Nazareth, but that Jesus would essentially come out of humility and brokenness, and, and that, that what is more broken than the podunk town of Nazareth? In fact, uh, The Chosen, the most recent episode, they play this scene. It's a little bit different than what happens in the Bible. But, and, and you can just tell, like, people would make fun of Nazareth. They're like, why would anything good come of that? It's a dump town. There's no way the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth. And so what Matthew is showing here is he's checking all these Jews who are thinking that this king, this Messiah, the chosen one is going to come from royalty and, and he's, going to, he's going to have all this great stuff and he's going to be powerful. But then he says, hey, all of the prophets are telling you that he is coming as a humble servant for us. And what more humble way than to come from a podunk city that you won't even respect? Once again, one of the most powerful things we will learn about the book of Matthew this entire year, I think, is that we don't really know who Jesus is and who he says he is and that we have our own perspective laced into who he is. And this is exactly what the Jews had done with the Messiah. They had assumed that he would come from Jerusalem. He would come from this great city. Even though he was born in Bethlehem, they knew that, that he would, he would be raised in this great, you know, he'd be this great, like, powerful person, and everybody would just have reverence for his, his power and wealth. And he's born, or born in Bethlehem, raised in Podunk, Nazareth. And so for us, I think in Matthew's final claim here, is that Jesus is who we least expect, but who we most need. And, and Isaiah 53, I don't have time to read the whole thing, but um, it, it says that, this is, this is just what it says about Jesus. I'm just going to read it. Um, I'll read part of it. Verse 2 in Isaiah 53. He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention. Interesting, because the Jews wasn't catching it. Surely he can't come from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? No special appearance that we would want to follow him. He, he was despised, rejected by people. One who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant. This is the Jesus in Matthew. This is the Jesus that we have to remember. Is God is so powerfully humble. There's no other way to describe it. Powerfully humble. Two words that should not go together, but they do. Through humility, we see power. And Jesus is doing that, and Matthew is doing that with the Jewish people. He's not who you think he is. Let me show you what you knew and what really matters. It's, it's the, the beauty of, of the scriptures. And so as we close, uh, we, kinda, we typically enter into a time of, of reflection where we can do a couple different things. I'm going to invite up the band. You can come up right now. Um, but we, we do a couple things, and we do this every Sunday. If you're new with us um, or you've been coming here, and we just explain it every time. One of the things we do is uh, we take what's, what's called the Lord's Supper. Um, Adam, can you actually grab that juice for me real quick right there? We, uh, we partake in this. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is uh, one of, I think, the most important things we do every Sunday. And the reason why is because this is a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. And so no matter how great my teaching is, our worship is, the coffee is, which is pretty great, this is, this is what we remember and why we're here. We take this as a, as a community, reminding ourselves that we, we are not as great as we think we are. We are broken, and Jesus made the sacrifice. And so in our time of reflection, you can do that. I also encourage you, we've got two people in the back who would love to pray for you. 
uh, they want to pray over you and for you, and we, we're praying church. And so if you're Christian, non-Christian, whatever, we'd love to pray for you. There's no reason why we, we wouldn't. And so they'll be in the back as well. Um, and so if you can take prayer, you can take this at any point during the next minute or so. We're going to have a little bit of uh, music. But I want to put this question in your head as you're thinking, you're reflecting. It, and it's kind of similar to last week, is have we in any way made Jesus into our own image instead of letting the Bible show us truly who Jesus is? What are you afraid of when you, when you learn most about Jesus and what must be let go? The second half of Isaiah 53, I close with, he was despised and we considered him insignificant. And then in verse four, it says, but he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, inflicted for something he had done, he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well because of his wounds we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off of our own path, but the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to a slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he willingly submitted to death and was outnumbered with the rebels. When he lifted up the sin of many and intervened, on behalf of the rebels. We are rebels, and this is a reminder of what he did for us. So I'll give you a minute or so to take that, and there's also prayer, and then we'll sing one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.